0: .com Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 42: The Scorched Plains. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in early July 1798. Napoleon's Army of the Orient had just landed on the Egyptian coast. And seized the port city of Alexandria from a weak, unprepared Mamluk garrison. Bonaparte had taken the first step towards his grand ambitions of conquering an empire in the East. Now the French expedition would face its first real test. Napoleon had shown his hand. France's enemies, the British and the Mamluks, had their first clear look of where the expedition was and what they were doing. Their responses were imminent. Napoleon surely knew to expect a reaction from his opponents, but it was not in his nature to sit passively back and wait for his enemies to take the initiative. The army of the Orient would spend less than a week in Alexandria, barely enough time to unload all their equipment and establish a base of operations for the coming campaign. Almost as soon as Alexandria fell, Bonaparte sent detachments inland, under General Dessay, to seize major towns southeast of the city, expanding the French foothold and gaining access to the all-important Nile River. Once again, the French troops ran out of water long before reaching their destinations. According to some reports, a few soldiers became so hopeless and crazed with thirst that they committed suicide. Others resorted to drinking water from the Nile. The locals knew better than to do this. Egypt is home to a bacteria called Chlamydia trachomatis, which lives in river water and can cause trachoma, a nasty infection which causes temporary blindness. Far too many Republican soldiers had to learn about trachoma the hard way. Others contracted more familiar symptoms of drinking dirty water, vomiting, and dysentery, both of which could be fatal when combined with dehydration. Fortunately for the French, thirst was the only serious challenge in most of these operations. The exception was a column led by General Charles Duguay, which was ordered to capture the coastal town of Rosetta. Duguay's poor maps led him to blunder around the desert for nearly a week in the blistering July heat, harassed all the way by Bedouin raids. His exhausted troops were lucky. When they finally reached Rosetta, there was no resistance. By now, it was clearly dangerous to move troops through this harsh, unfamiliar terrain. However, Bonaparte was eager to march deeper inland. As I mentioned last episode, Alexandria was actually a relatively out-of-the-way place in the social, political, and economic geography of 18th-century Egypt. Egypt's great strength was agriculture. The heart of the country was in the floodplain of the Nile. This was the source of most of the economic activity, where most of the population lived, and the region the Mamluks would fight hardest to hold. As it still does today, the city of Cairo dominated this area. It is about 220 kilometers, or 136 miles, southeast of Alexandria. Roughly 300,000 people lived in Cairo and its environs in 1798, That pales in comparison to its modern population of nearly 20 million, but it ranked among the largest cities in the world in the Napoleonic era. London, Paris, and Naples are the only European cities we can say for certain were bigger at this time. According to a census of Egypt taken by Napoleon's savants, Cairo and its suburbs held about 10% of the total population of the country, although I personally suspect they wildly undercounted the countryside And, in an agrarian society, that means they probably missed a huge number of people. But, whatever its share of the population, there was no disputing Cairo's significance as the political and cultural capital of Egypt. Remember, lord of the city was the most important title in the Mamluk hierarchy, which tells you quite a lot. Quite literally, holding Cairo was synonymous with ruling Egypt. There was a lot about Egypt Napoleon did not understand but even to a foreigner who knew the country mostly from books, the significance of Cairo was immediately evident. He aimed to capture the city as soon as possible. But first, he decided to attempt some politicking to ease his way. Bonaparte ordered El Kuraim, the Bey of Alexandria, to gather the local Bedouin chieftains for a summit. He remembered those horsemen who had harassed the column on their way to Alexandria and wished to avoid a repeat. There was also the matter of French prisoners taken by the Bedouin. And finally, the army needed horses, and even as far away as Europe, the Bedouin were famous for their skill in horse breeding. The meeting between Napoleon and the Bedouin took place on July 5th, and it went well. The Bedouin agreed to stop attacking the French, to sell or rent a large number of horses and camels to the army, and to release their prisoners, all in exchange for a reasonable payment of gold. With the consent of the Bedouins secured, on the night of July 6th through July 7th, the main body of the Army of the Orient marched out of Alexandria, numbering just under 20,000 men. The push on Cairo had begun. The first leg of the journey was about 70 kilometers, or 43 miles, east-southeast, across the desert to the town of Damanur, on the edge of the Nile Valley. There, the army would cut east to the river, rendezvous with transport barges from the fleet, and follow the course of the Nile south, to Cairo. Tracing this route on a map, it looked like a simple affair. True, the desert was not ideal terrain, but it would be less than 50 miles. In the past, we've seen French armies cover that distance in only a few days. No one at headquarters predicted the hell that awaited the Army of the Orient. During our episodes on the Italian campaign, we saw Napoleon learn the value of mobility. How many times had the army of Italy confounded the Austrians by marching faster than any old regime general thought possible? As we discussed, a lot of different factors enabled them to do that. The morale and motivation of the republican troops, the organization of the French armies, Bonaparte's own strategic insights, and, most importantly for the purposes of this discussion, Napoleon's troops traveled very light. This worked well in northern Italy, a prosperous, developed region of rich farmland with a mild climate and high population density. During the Italian campaign, French soldiers never had to look very far to find a village or estate where they might restock from plentiful stores of food, fresh water, and basic supplies. It was very easy to live off the land. There were good roads, sturdy bridges, mostly pleasant Mediterranean weather. The local people and their language were not so different from the French, and a few of them were even sympathetic to the Republic, or at least friendly enough to conduct business with the French army. Almost everything about the Italian countryside lent itself to Napoleon's fast-moving, improvisational style of maneuver, and almost all of those attributes were absent from the deserts of Egypt. There was very little land anywhere on earth as prosperous and developed as northern Italy, and after centuries of misrule by the Mamluks, Egypt was nowhere close. And even by Egyptian standards, the route from Alexandria to Damanur was very rough country, practically a no-man's land, with no significant infrastructure or agriculture. Very few people lived outside the fertile Nile valley, and even they struggled to survive. This was land dominated by the Bedouin tribesmen. They had survived in this country for centuries, with folk knowledge which taught them how to carefully husband scarce resources and understand this unforgiving environment. The Army of the Orient had no such knowledge. Napoleon's experiences in Italy had taught him the virtues of moving fast and traveling light. He and his officers were still in that mindset, and they were about to learn that it was poorly suited to operations in the desert. To take one example, The average infantryman on the expedition would have been wearing a shirt, waistcoat, trousers, and gaiters, which are a cloth sleeve that fit over the lower leg, kind of like spats. These were white or off-white, and most would have been made of linen, which is a good material for hot conditions. But they were cut close to the body and sealed tightly at the neck and ankles, which locked in sweat and body heat. Uniform jackets were made of dark blue wool, Now, this wasn't thick wool like you would find in a modern blanket or winter coat, but it's still probably the worst possible choice for taking a long march under the North African sun. On their heads, the men wore bicorn hats, or in some cases a kind of faux helmet trimmed with animal fur, both constructed out of heavy felt and painted with black waterproof paint. The average soldier's kit and equipment weighed about 40 pounds, or 18 kilograms. This getup looked pretty smart on the temperate plains of Europe, but it was almost comically unsuited for summertime in the sands of Egypt, where daytime temperatures can reach up to 115 degrees Fahrenheit, or 46 Celsius. Obviously, once the march began, any extraneous items of clothing came off very quickly. Sometimes they were discarded entirely. Apparently the army left a trail of blue jackets in their wake. But any concession to the heat was strictly unofficial. Technically speaking, the army was expected to walk into the heart of Egypt in their blue wool jackets and black felt hats. But their stifling, uncomfortable uniforms were the least of the men's worries. As always, Napoleon did not want to be slowed down by a large, cumbersome supply train, so the men mostly ate whatever they could carry, plus whatever they might buy or forage on the way. Veteran Republican soldiers were artists at conjuring up food, seemingly out of nowhere, but as they pushed into the desert, there was simply none to be found. That meant there was very little to eat other than the hardtack they'd brought with them all the way from Toulon. If you've never heard of hardtack, imagine a huge, low-quality saltine cracker, roughly the size of a hamburger patty, but unsalted and rock-hard. Hardtack didn't spoil, so it was a common feature of soldiers' and sailors' diets but it was almost universally detested, and it's not hard to see why. Hardtack was dry, bland, and often so hard that it was physically painful to eat unless first soaked in water. Theoretically, the hard crust prevented insect infestation, but in practice, bugs and maggots sometimes made the crackers even more disgusting. Hardtack was far from ideal under the very best of conditions. Out in the parched desert, it became totally unbearable. Just like their uniforms, many soldiers tossed their hardtack into the sand. Better to wait on real food than exacerbate your thirst trying to gnaw on a solid rock of dry flour. Because of all the hardships faced on the march south, dehydration was by far the most punishing, and the most dangerous. Once again, the French had failed to bring adequate supplies of water. Within only a few hours, canteens began to empty, and the struggle with thirst began. No one at headquarters had anticipated this. On their maps, you could find plenty of villages and wells where Napoleon expected the men to refill their canteens without any trouble. But as the army advanced, they found villages and Bedouin camps empty. The people had fled and taken their supplies of water with them. The wells remained, of course, but most were nearly dry. In July, the Nile is near its lowest ebb, and the water table had dropped below all but the very deepest wells. One officer on the expedition described a group of soldiers collecting the tiny pool of water at the bottom of a dry well and parceling it out amongst themselves in tiny servings of only a few ounces each, downing their cups like a shot of brandy. According to another account from a French sergeant, there were much uglier scenes at other wells. Quote, in five minutes the wells were emptied. Soldiers pressed to descend on them, and many were smothered. Others were crushed by the mob. More than thirty died around those wells. Many, unable to get water, committed suicide. End quote. A quartermaster described the suffering of the army quote, We were annihilated. We had to march over an immense plain of arid sand in a climate far hotter than our own without the benefit of a single shadow. In this overwhelming situation, we could not quench the thirst that devoured us. End quote. Again and again, the troops were fooled by mirages, an optical illusion in which light reflecting off the desert sand appears to be a shimmering pool of water. Gaspard Mange, one of the savants, would soon become the first European scholar to document and explain this phenomenon, but the advance of science would have been cold comfort to the thirst crazed men who rushed towards the water only to find yet another lake of sand. It was like the desert itself was mocking their suffering. As the army struggled to survive in this harsh, unfamiliar environment, Napoleon's newly purchased Bedouin allies could have been a great help. Unfortunately for the French, Bonaparte's agreement with the desert nomads fell apart almost as soon as their summit ended. Perhaps the Bedouin had always intended to break this bargain, tell this strange foreigner whatever he needed to hear in the moment to make him hand over some gold, then stab him in the back. Or perhaps they were motivated by religious obligations. A ruling came down from the Sunni religious authorities shortly after the meeting, ordering all faithful Muslims to resist the French. The Bedouin might easily have decided that the duty to their religious leaders outweighed any deal with Bonaparte. Whatever their reasons, no help was forthcoming, and the raiding and harassment continued unabated. One young French officer remembered, quote, The Bedouin followed us like sharks following a ship at sea, to murder and rob any stragglers. They even swooped on the flanks, threatening a similar fate to anyone who strayed too far from the main body of the army. Unlike the Bedouin, the peasants and townspeople of the region did not actively resist the French, but they were not inclined to help either. Every village or settlement the army encountered was practically abandoned, and typically stripped of anything useful. In their frustration, Republican soldiers stole what they could, and sometimes set buildings on fire. So much for hearts and minds. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. By July 12th, the last units of the Army of the Orient had finally trickled in to Damanur. It had taken the French six days to travel a distance that some units had covered in 24 hours back in Italy. Estimates vary, but several hundred Republican soldiers died in the desert. At the moment they arrived in Damanur, and saw that they had access to food and water once again, the men became almost delirious with relief. Some immediately stripped down and threw themselves into the river. They guzzled down cool water from the wells, and gorged on melons until they were nearly sick. One Frenchman later remembered that the arrival at Damanur, quote, remains etched in the mind of every soldier in the division as one of the best memories of his life, end quote. Once the army's hunger and thirst were finally satisfied, the euphoria wore off, and anger grew in its place. Proper planning and organization could have alleviated much of the suffering of the preceding days, and prevented almost all of the deaths. The officers in particular were furious, nearly to the point of mutiny. Before Napoleon's arrival in Damanur, General Dumas, the expedition's chief of cavalry, held an impromptu get-together in his tent with some of the senior generals of the expedition. The purpose of this meeting and what exactly transpired remained controversial. General Dumas's son, the novelist Alexandre Dumas, described it this way: quote, The gathering quickly took on political overtones when the generals began to air their frustrations. What had we come to do in this accursed country? a place that had devoured so many would-be conquerors. Why leave the warm, gentle sun, great forests, and fertile plains of France, for this fiery sky, this shadeless desert, these scorched plains? Was Bonaparte hoping to carve himself out a new monarchy, as the ancient Roman governors had done? He might have at least asked the other generals if they would be content as the leaders of this new viceroyalty. That might have appealed to the ancient armies, but it wouldn't to the patriots of 1792, who weren't pawns of one man, but soldiers of a nation. Was there anything to these criticisms beyond the harmless grumbling that emerges under stress? Or was this the beginning of a rebellion against the ambitions of a future leader of a coup? The generals themselves might have been hard-pressed to answer. Whatever their intentions, the anger was real. Even General Lahn and General Murat, two of Napoleon's oldest and closest friends, joined the chorus. Napoleon didn't travel to Damanur with the army. He left Alexandria with a small entourage a few days later, and made the trip with relative speed and comfort. But Bonaparte never stayed ignorant of anything that happened in his army for long. He quickly learned of the soldiers' suffering and of the discontent among the officers. Someone even spilled the beans about that little off-the-record gathering in General Dumas' tent. When he arrived in Damanour, Napoleon took the situation immediately in hand. To deal with the officers, Bonaparte turned his ire on General Dumas. Dumas was the most senior commander to have voiced his discontent. That meeting of disgruntled generals had occurred under his roof, called together under his initiative. So, fairly or unfairly, Bonaparte identified him as the chief malcontent, and perhaps even the ringleader of a nascent conspiracy. Napoleon had to nip this problem in the bud, and so he chose to make an example of the lanky Haitian. He subjected Dumas to a blistering public reprimand, accusing him of sedition, and even threatening to have him shot. Would he have actually done it? Well, Napoleon could be prone to hyperbole, especially when he was angry but he certainly took the prospect of mutiny, or some kind of palace coup by the officers, seriously. It must have occurred to him that the army was very far from home, and thus far from the scrutiny of the government, or the reach of any official justice. If there really was a clique of officers within the Army of the Orient contemplating some kind of radical action to rein in Bonaparte, his reprimand of Dumas seems to have shocked them back into obedience or at least silence. But if this was just the harmless grumbling that emerges under stress, it probably would have quieted down on its own, as the army's fortunes changed. And in that case, Napoleon had just poisoned his relationship with one of his most valuable subordinates for nothing. We'll never know which is closer to the truth. As for the men, Bonaparte delivered a stern speech telling them their hardships would not truly end until they reached Cairo. This was a bit of a gamble. If the troops really were at their limit, this speech could have dashed their hopes even further and pushed them closer to despair or even mutiny. However, Napoleon was betting that despite the ordeal of the last few days, the men still had reserves of strength and willpower left, and that they still trusted him enough that he could call upon those reserves. He turned out to be right. Despite their grumbling, the Army of the Orient rallied. As it turned out, that speech was more bluster than truth. The hardest part of the march actually was over. The army had now entered the fertile Nile Valley. Cairo was still about 150 kilometers away, or just under 100 miles. But from here on out, the terrain was much more forgiving. Food and water were plentiful. The river made communications and logistics much easier. The local people were mostly sedentary farmers, not warlike mounted nomads. The worst was truly over. As the army approached Cairo, they were also approaching the forces of Murad Bey and Ibrahim Bey, the leaders of the Mamluk regime, who were marshalling their forces to oppose Bonaparte. Resistance began to heat up. Since arriving in Egypt, the French had been in almost constant contact with hostile forces, but these were mostly small bands of irregular Bedouin horsemen. There was the occasional skirmish, but generally they melted back into the desert whenever challenged. Now, as they marched further south along the Nile, the French began to encounter more professional enemies, companies of militia or small bands of Mamluk cavalry. Raids and skirmishes became more frequent. And more sophisticated. Sometimes they escalated into small battles. The French were entering the Egyptian heartland. The Mamluks weren't yet ready to offer battle, but they wouldn't simply let Bonaparte advance without paying a price. They were testing the French, trying to get their measure, see how they fought, how they responded to different tactics, how many of them there were, and how they were organized. The largest of these engagements occurred near a hamlet called Shubrahit on the banks of the Nile. Around 4,000 Mamluks, supported by at least twice as many militia infantry, attacked the Army of the Orient, while the small Mamluk navy mounted a simultaneous raid on a flotilla of French supply ships and gunboats anchored nearby. As was their habit, the Mamluks opened the engagement with a cavalry charge. Bonaparte responded by ordering the army to form squares. The infantry square was a formation specifically designed to resist cavalry. As the name suggests, the men of each unit fixed their bayonets and arranged themselves into a four sided hollow box, each side two ranks deep, with the front rank kneeling and the back rank standing. In this era, the goal of any cavalry charge against infantry was to break up the enemy formation. Cavalry were vulnerable to massed musket fire and could not charge into a solid row of bayonets. But if the formation broke and the foot soldiers scattered, Cavalrymen could use their superior mobility to cut them down, almost at will. Sometimes, the sheer terror of facing down hundreds of screaming, sword-wielding enemy horsemen mounted on gigantic cavalry steeds was enough to make an infantry unit lose their nerve, panic, and run for their lives. Any infantryman of this era knew that keeping his wits, following orders, and staying in formation were his best chance at surviving a cavalry charge but it took training, experience, discipline, and trust in your comrades and officers for that knowledge to overcome the understandable human instinct to run for your life. If the infantry held their nerve, the cavalry would attempt to get around their flanks and attack from the rear. The square formation was so effective against enemy cavalry because it has no flanks to turn. Enemy horsemen can envelop a square quite easily, but then they face an equal amount of firepower and an equal number of bayonets on each side. It has no weak point. Assuming everyone was in his proper place and no one panicked, a square was nearly invulnerable to cavalry. But those are big assumptions. Several hundred men rapidly redeploying into an entirely different formation could be hard to pull off on the parade ground. Now imagine the same task on the battlefield moving on soft, sandy ground, half-blinded by gunpowder smoke, half-deaf from the sound of cannon, overheated and exhausted. Only trained, disciplined, professional soldiers could pull off a square. At Shubraquit, hundreds of terrifying-looking Mamluks were headed right for the French army, at a full gallop. If the Republicans didn't form their squares in time, most of them would die. If you were in their shoes, would you stay and try to follow your company commander's orders? Or is it time to run? On that day, hardly anyone chose to run. An officer who fought in the battle would later remember The enemy had hardly advanced a few paces when he received an almost point blank burst of musket fire. Many enemy cavalrymen were hit and fell dead from their horses into the bloody sand. Having attempted several ineffectual charges, the enemy decided to engage in a mass attack. His cavalry swung round and fell on us with the speed of lightning. We allowed them to approach to a certain distance before our artillery thundered, overwhelming the attackers with fire and shot. The carnage was so terrible that the survivors did not wait for the ensuing volleys, which, nonetheless, rendered their rout complete. End quote. The Mamluk navy fared slightly better. The French fleet was surprised and loaded down with supplies and passengers. Some of the French ships were boarded, and supposedly even a few of the savants were forced to take up arms and fight to repel the enemy. It was touch-and-go for a few hours, but once the Mamluks were defeated on land, Napoleon turned the army's artillery onto the river, and that quickly turned the tide. The French suffered only a few dozen casualties at the Battle of Shubrachit. Apparently, the trials of the march had a negligible impact on the army's fighting ability. Mamluk casualties are unknown, but presumably relatively high. This lopsided engagement had laid bare the inadequacy of Mamluk tactics against a modern European army. The Army of the Orient was unlike any force ever seen in Egypt. Two key French advantages stand out. First, firepower. Horsemen were especially vulnerable to mass cannon and musket fire. Quite simply, a horse and rider is a very big target. There was no tactic or weapon in the Mamluk repertoire to mitigate this weakness. Second, professionalism. Most of the Mamluk's familiar opponents were incapable of maintaining any coherent formation in the face of a mass cavalry charge, not to mention a complicated formation like an infantry square. They did their serious fighting against enemy cavalry, man to man. In their minds, infantry were sitting ducks, just waiting to be scattered and cut down. But these enemy foot soldiers actually held their ground, and these square formations could not only withstand a charge, but deal some serious damage to any oncoming horsemen. It was an entirely new challenge for the Mamluks. They failed to adapt and suffered the consequences. Napoleon hoped to follow up on his success, but by the time he could organize a pursuit, the Mamluks were gone.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The French continued south. On July 20th, they reached the furthest outskirts of Cairo. The Great Pyramids of Giza were finally visible. Although, contrary to many artist depictions, they were barely discernible hulks in the distance. The army never actually got very close to Giza during this phase of the campaign. Bonaparte's scouts finally detected the main body of the Mamluk army. It was encamped in and around the town of Mbaba, which sits in a bend in the Nile only a few miles north of Cairo. It seems Murad and Ibrahim had chosen their ground to make a stand and defend the capital. The next day, July 21st, Napoleon attacked. It's hard to be precise about the number of soldiers involved in this battle. On paper, Napoleon had nearly 25,000 men but that number had been winnowed down as he was forced to leave garrisons in his rear, and by the larger-than-usual number of men on sick leave or in the hospital. The real number is probably just under 20,000, divided into five divisions, plus the cavalry under Dumas. It's even harder to estimate the size of the Mamluk forces. I've seen numbers ranging from 20,000 all the way up to 80,000. The Mamluks were not big on centralized record-keeping, so we just don't have that much data. There's also a question of who to actually count. A lot of the Mamluk troops were more like medieval peasant levies, poorly armed, poorly trained farmers, forced into temporary service by feudal obligations to their Mamluk lords. As soldiers, these men would not have been suited for anything much more demanding than guard duty, if that. And as we've seen, the Mamluks hardly ever used infantry anyway. My guess would be they brought these people with them to war to do grunt work, and to ensure they didn't stir up trouble back in the provinces while the Mamluks were away on campaign, not because they planned on actually using them in battle. The reliable core of the Egyptian army, the Mamluk cavalry, probably numbered around 20,000 men. Roughly half of the Mamluk force was arranged along the west bank of the Nile, opposite the French, under the personal command of Murad Bey the de facto ruler of Egypt. The other half was on the east bank, commanded by his deputy, Ibrahim Bey. Napoleon's plan was simple. He would advance with his right flank, the one furthest from the river, thus threatening the Mamluk line of retreat and drawing their attention away from his main objective, the town of Mbaba itself, which commanded the approach to Cairo. Murad Bey took the bait. As soon as the French right began their advance, he ordered a mass charge. Napoleon gave the order to form squares. It was from within one of these formations that he supposedly uttered one of the most famous lines of the campaign. Pointing at the pyramids, he shouted to his men quote, Remember, from those monuments, forty centuries look down upon you. End quote. It seems a bit too theatrical to be true. But then again, we know Napoleon had a flair for the dramatic, and thought of the campaign in the context of Egypt's ancient history. Apparently, the Mamluks had learned nothing from their defeat at Shubrahit. Once again, the squares held, and once again, the Mamluks were torn apart by Republican firepower as they rode impotently around the French squares. On the other side of the battlefield, the situation was much less lopsided. The Mamluks had built entrenchments around Mbaba, and concentrated nearly all of their artillery inside the town, perhaps as many as 60 cannon. Storming such a well-fortified position was a daunting task, even against sub-par enemy troops. It was slow going at first, but the French quickly discovered that the Mamluk artillery was antiquated, totally immobile, and incapable of traversing more than a few degrees in any direction. Armed with this knowledge, they rushed the town and were quickly under the guns. As the French poured into Imbaba. the garrison panicked and fled. Finding the enemy coming from all directions, many jumped into the Nile, where perhaps as many as a thousand were swept away by the current, never to emerge. On the French right, Murad Bey's cavalry flowed uselessly around the squares. The vanguard of the charge actually made it all the way past the final square into Napoleon's rear, but to what end? There was nothing to attack, no vulnerabilities to exploit, and every second they took more casualties from musket and cannon fire. With the charge going nowhere and Mbaba falling to the enemy, Murad Bey recognized the battle was lost. He ordered his men to fall back west, away from Cairo and away from the rest of the Mamluk army. A French officer summed up the battle, quote, Justice must be done here to the bravery of the Mamluks. If their tactics matched their courage, they would have made us pay dearly for our victory, but their inexperience guaranteed our success. End quote. It's honestly a bit of an anticlimax. This would prove to be one of the decisive battles of the campaign, but it only lasted an hour, and the outcome had never once been in doubt. The French lost just 29 killed and 290 wounded. Mamluk losses were probably somewhere in the low thousands, perhaps as many as one-third of whom drowned in the Nile, trying to escape the French. Their casualties certainly would have been much higher if the battle hadn't been so short, or if they had committed more of their army. A minority of historians call this engagement by a logical name, the Battle of Imbaba but it's generally known by the more romantic name Napoleon gave it, the Battle of the Pyramids, after monuments that were barely visible to the combatants and played no role whatsoever in the geography of the battle. Naming the engagement after the Pyramids is bad scholarship, but it was very smart public relations. The battle immediately captured people's imaginations. Out of all the memorable incidents from Napoleon's life and career, The Battle of the Pyramids has remained one of the most popular subjects for artists. And it's not hard to see why. The image of a battle at the foot of these huge ancient monoliths is inherently arresting. It also had thematic appeal. Remember, Europe was in the midst of an obsession with classical history, and depictions of Napoleon, the most famous man of the age, as a classical hero were very popular showing Napoleon in battle next to the pyramids, created a visual link with the ancient past, especially with Alexander and Caesar. There was also the Orientalist angle, the idea of the French army, representing European modernity, reason, and enlightenment, forming their disciplined squares to hold off a wild charge by a horde of Mamluks, representing the barbarity and despotism of the exotic East. Certainly a bigoted interpretation, and not very illuminating, but it appealed to Orientalist sensibilities of the age. The reality of any battle is a letdown compared to its romantic depictions and culture, but in the case of the Battle of the Pyramids, the contrast between legend and truth is particularly stark. The dismal performance of the Mamluk army can largely be explained by their outdated organization and tactics, but some historians believe there was another factor at play. Treachery. If you'll recall, around half the Mamluk army spent the battle on the far bank of the Nile, where they watched the proceedings from the sidelines, playing no active role whatsoever. This half of the army was commanded by Ibrahim Bey, number two in the Mamluk hierarchy. After the battle, Ibrahim Bey made no further attempt to defend Cairo, but withdrew east, with his forces intact. As the theory goes, Ibrahim was supposed to make some kind of independent attack across the river, or move his troops to support Murad. But instead, he held his men back, allowing Napoleon to devastate the other half of the army, killing many of Murad's household and retainers. With Murad Bey on the run, humiliated, at the head of a devastated army, you could easily make the argument that Ibrahim Bey, undefeated, with his army intact, had just given himself a promotion. And become the most powerful Mamluk in Egypt. Which certainly begs the question was this turn of events deliberate? This type of backstabbing certainly wouldn't be out of place in Mamluk politics. In the past, the partnership between Ibrahim and Murad had occasionally been interrupted by periods of rivalry. Maybe the Battle of the Pyramids marks the beginning of another one of those periods. You'd almost have to admire the pure Machiavellian coldness. It's a compelling case, but it should also be said that the engagement only lasted an hour. Perhaps Ibrahim Bey actually had intended on playing some part in the battle, but it was all over before he had the chance. Or perhaps he saw how badly his colleague was losing, and decided on the spot that discretion is the better part of valor. It certainly was better for the Mamluk cause to have half the army still intact out in the field, even if it meant giving up Cairo to the French. Whatever the case, Ibrahim Bey and his men fell back east, offering no resistance. The next day, July 22, 1798, a delegation of prominent residents of Cairo met with the French to discuss the surrender of the city. Despite all the missteps and blunders of the preceding weeks, the expedition seemed basically on track for success. In just three weeks, the French had taken control of the capital and most of the major ports and towns in the country. Cairo was the political, cultural, and economic capital of the country, and the key to the Nile Valley, which in turn was the key to the entire region. The army of the Orient had met the main body of the Mamluk forces on the battlefield, and not only emerged victorious, but beaten them so soundly that it called the entire Mamluk way of war into question. Napoleon's dream of an eastern empire may have seemed implausible at first glance, and it certainly looked quite shaky in the opening weeks of the campaign. But as the French army entered Cairo, that dream was passing some important milestones on the way to becoming a reality. This optimistic outlook for the expedition would last a grand total of ten days. Bonaparte had successfully parried the counterstroke from the Mamluk bays, But he was still waiting on the Royal Navy's response to the invasion, and when that finally came, even the British themselves were stunned by what a spectacular blow it turned out to be. But that story will have to wait for next time. However, it will not have to wait two whole weeks. When I wrote the first draft of this episode, it ended on August 2nd, 1798, just after the British finally caught up with Napoleon's fleet. But I wanted to include more details about the March South, and I couldn't find a way to do both stories justice without the episode sprawling out of control. So I decided to cut things off here, and in a few days I'll be releasing a short bonus episode about the naval campaign, which honestly probably deserves to stand on its own, not just as a postscript tacked on to a story about the advance on Cairo. So keep a lookout for that bonus episode. If all goes according to plan, it will be available in a few days. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution Podcast.